While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. From an that pretty gal to Georgia. In 1945, World War II ended and the whole world seemed to go into overdrive. Within a few years, everything was different. A person born in the 1800s who suddenly found themselves transported to 1950 would be completely unable to comprehend the world around them. Computers, airplanes, radio, and television. All of it. Think of it for a minute. Someone who was born the year Wilbur and Orville Wright flew 120 feet in the first airplane would have been 66 when we landed on the moon. Technology changes fast, and especially after World War II, after the post-war economic boom and the need to outpace the Russians. Of course, not every avenue that was explored worked out. We still don't have flying cars in every garage, and if you remember a previous episode on items in the newspaper, those radium belts that were going to cure all our troubles were actually a pretty bad idea. One of the fastest developments was an aircraft design. World War II started with prop-driven monoplanes and closed with the first generation of jet fighters. Aircraft were becoming crucial. Long-range bombers were needed to deliver our newest atomic weapons, and fighters would be needed to protect our country from the other guys' bombers. The Navy had the right idea. Power their craft with nuclear energy. By the mid-50s, we were building submarines that could stay submerged and basically only come up when it was time for the crew to re-enlist. Of course, someone wondered if that same principle could be applied to aircraft, and it worked out right here in Northeast Georgia. This is Moving Through Georgia, Series 3, Episode 3, The Atomic Aircraft. For a lot of this, I'm working from a book called Atomic Adventures by James Maffey. Maffey? The scientists who brought us into the atomic age were considering the use of nuclear power for bombers even at the start of the Manhattan Project. In the Pacific, lives were being lost as American men jumped from one island to another, working towards an island that had a bomber's range of Japan. That sacrifice wouldn't be necessary if an airplane could fly an almost indefinite distance powered by a few grams of radioactive material. I won't take you through the exhaustive process of study after study as the idea developed. A lot of the preliminary work was done in Texas. But we're in Georgia, so let's jump to the Dawsonville Herald, April 13, 1956. The headline is, Dawson site of nuclear aircraft research. The moonshiners were pushed out and Air Force Plant 67 or the Georgia Nuclear Aircraft Laboratory was built. There was also a facility in Marietta. The Dawson Forest area had been a center for gold mining once. High pressure water mining continued into the 1900s, but now it was fenced off and the trees were being cleared. One story says that a few people were aware that something related to atomic energy was being built inside the fence. Sometimes masses of smoke would be seen rising behind the fence and it would start a small panic because it might be a massive atomic accident. 
What the locals eventually figured out was that the government was just burning away all the trees they needed to clear for their buildings. And they needed space. A railroad, electrical substation, water purification plant, and a water tower were needed besides the office buildings and nuclear labs. I spent a small time at an Air Force station in the Caribbean, and I was amazed at all the dorms, the firehouse, the power station, the water facility, the HVAC workers, the cafeterias and bars. In this case, over a hundred people employed to support the work of two Air Force officers, a few engineers, and one radar dish. This facility in the Dawson Forest was also a small city manufactured for one purpose. To ensure the safety of the neighbors, a considerable amount of meteorological equipment was installed and tests were only conducted when any potential escaping radiation wouldn't drift into populated areas. They also had to be very careful of low-flying aircraft. A civilian airplane flying lower than 5,000 feet in the area during a test could get a fatal dose of radiation. A microphone was placed on a high tower and monitored for the sound of an approaching plane. Apparently, the experiment would be shut down if one came too close. Most of the operations near the reactor were done in a concrete building buried under five feet of earth. Construction was complete in 1958 and the reactor was started. The author says that when it reached full power, every living thing within a thousand feet experienced something the engineers called instant taxidermy. Let's just leave it at that. But... Keep that in mind, this was a large concrete line building that was still fatal to people who came near. The question being addressed was how to put one of these reactors in an airplane without killing the pilots and ground crew. What would happen in the event of a crash? How do you even change the oil in a highly radioactive airplane engine? A nuclear submarine could carry lots of lead shielding and safety mechanisms. Weight was more of an issue when it came to aircraft. The scientists in Dawsonville found that tires tend to liquefy under radiation and hydraulic fluid turns to sticky goo. Plus, there was the problem of electronics. Radiation is tough on electronic circuitry, especially on something that was fairly new at the time, the transistor. The Air Force, when it was describing captured Soviet fighter jets, would point out that modern American aircraft used state-of-the-art computers while the Soviets were still using vacuum tubes. Sometimes, sometimes people would point out that vacuum tubes are far more resistant to radiation than transistors. So over the course of about two years, it was determined that a nuclear-powered airplane just wasn't going to work. There was no way to lift the amount of shielding that would be needed to protect the pilots, and the advent of intercontinental ballistic missiles made the development of a long, long, long-range bomber less urgent. They tried, but the program was officially terminated in 1961, leaving Lockheed with an entire facility and two hot nuclear reactors. They couldn't exactly pack up and leave. Millions of dollars had been spent building the facility, and while it sat idle, an entire staff would be needed to keep everything safe. 
Some work was still carried out. One year, studies were conducted to test radiation exposure of computer components. Then came something different, and maybe you've heard of it. Lockwood. In 1965, it was discovered that wood combined with plastic could be exposed to a crazy amount of radiation to create superwood. It was called Lockwood, and it was harder, stronger, and lasted longer than regular wood. The lab in Dawsonville, which was now named the Georgia Nuclear Laboratory, started churning out the stuff, but demand dropped off around 1970 and production stopped. The only places I could locate that actually used Lockwood were various government buildings, usually in the floors. Something like this is still done today using resins and vacuum chambers. It's marketed as stabilized wood and apparently resists decay better than regular wood. Now, not to be outdone, the Soviets tried their own hand at producing a nuclear-powered airplane and may have even fitted out a bomber with a small reactor, but the idea was never fully developed. Most likely, they hit the same snags that we did and the nuclear-powered aircraft became an interesting footnote in history. Eventually, the facility was closed and the buildings were dismantled. Does this seem like a failure? Well, the idea of a nuclear airplane on paper isn't that crazy. Sure, they went into this knowing that there was no way to lift a fully shielded reactor, but when the Manhattan Project started, they didn't have a plan on how they were going to do that either. In 1961, JFK announced that we were going to the moon almost a year before John Glenn even orbited the Earth, and they managed to solve that problem. It was completely reasonable at the time to think that either they would develop some new technology that would make a nuclear airplane possible, or they would find that it was completely unfeasible. And that's a sort of win, too, because then we would know that the Soviets couldn't build one either. Mahaffey does say that those behind this project did conduct a lot of research on a nuclear reactor's effect on the immediate environment, and that information has proved important in further work. There are fences and no trespassing signs, especially near the sites that once housed the reactors. Mahaffey claims that there is still some residual radiation in those buildings, but not enough to affect people in the area. Tales of mutated plants and animals are still told, but no three-eyed fish have yet been caught. My daughter will sometimes show me videos of something called urban exploration on YouTube. This is people exploring abandoned locations at Disney World or closed shopping malls. There are plenty of websites with pictures of people climbing under the fence or standing near steel-shielded doors. I don't recommend any of this. What I do recommend is subscribing to Moving Through Georgia. Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or complaints, we'd love to hear from you at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. This is a bit of a digression, but if you must find a place to explore or some content for your Instagram, I actually can recommend some places. The Atlanta History Center has a house called the Swan House, which was used as President Snow's Manor in the Hunger Games movies. 
the Atlanta Marriott Marquis, which if you've ever been to Dragon Con, you know is very cool inside, was also in the Hunger Games movies. Of course, the Jackson Street Bridge and various other Atlanta locations for The Walking Dead. I actually have a picture of myself and my family in front of the CDC sign. The scenes of Star-Lord growing up in Guardians of the Galaxy were located in Cartersville, including the Mellow Mushroom. And if you're a fan of Stranger Things, a lot of locations can be found on the internet, many of which are still decorated for the show. They look good on the gram, and visiting them isn't illegal. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all.